Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killa. How do we understand other claims of monotheism? In his lecture, Do We Really Think Monotheists Believe in the Same God? Rabbi Ethan Tucker explores some of the laws surrounding idolatry and considers whether a claim of shared monotheism is sufficient to ground a sense of overlapping religious purpose. Let's listen in. We are going to jump into a topic for which you have the sources in the chat here, a kind of a little less than one hour, uh, really survey and exploration um, of the question that I've put as, do monotheists all believe in the same God? We're mostly going to jump right into sources, some of which are really just pretty central sources, not kind of... Uh, far-flung, uh, you know, really obscure ones rescued from the, you know, from the dustbin of halachic history, but the main sources that come up in this conversation and will mostly be in the nitty-gritty of those interpretations. But I want to give a few words of introduction of sort of the title and what I'm hoping we'll get out of this, not only on the level of conclusion, but on the level of thinking and framing and just how we how we might approach the underlying questions here. As I always say, uh, I am more than happy for folks to reflect in the chat as we are going. So to begin here, the question, do monotheists all believe in the same God, is based on some level on a feeling that we need to interrogate. What is it at the end of the day that potentially puts people into a shared or overlapping faith space. And one common way of doing that is simply through theology and dogma. In other words, so do you want to know uh, if someone is an Oved Avodah Zarah, if they are someone engaged in foreign worship? Well, then search their dogma understand their principles, and if you can conclude that they are monotheist, well, then you're done. Because if you believe in one God, by definition, there can be only one God. Uh, that God then must be the same as all the other one gods. Uh, and as long as you can kind of remove the specter of polytheism from the discussion, you are then potentially in a place where you can say, well, that person is not Jewish, that person is following a different religion. That person may not be following the mitzvot, such that it may not be that I could simply adopt their religious way of life. But if there's a basic expectation uh, in terms of avoiding idolatry for all human beings, if there's some vision, whether through the Noahide laws or just the kind of core narrative, starting with Adam and Noah and the Torah, uh, that that's a baseline expectation, uh, that may be enough. From a different perspective, you can kind of look at religion not starting from the theology and trickling down to the ritual, uh, but in the other direction, which is to say that, well, what makes religions different is that they practice things differently. Um, they have different prohibitions or lack thereof. They have different rights, R-I-T-E-S, or lack thereof. Um, and out of that, uh, we kind of construct uh, some language of God, but that's not really actually what matters. And then the discussion, 
will be much more, well, are we compatible with others to the extent we want to? And I'll get more on that in a minute, based really much less on what's the dogma one way or the other, but perhaps what's the way in which they practice and does it feel at odds with the kind of world that we're trying to build? Specifically, if you go back to the Tanakh, you will find it's very hard to separate out the strands of worship of foreign deities from the strands of immorality. That is to say, when the prophets go off against various kinds of worship that are abominations and anathema, they jump quite freely from the absurdity and incoherence of worshiping idols of stone and wood to the sacrifice of children in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, to the kinds of uh, atrocities committed in war or any number of other things uh, that the foreign and other entities that are tarred and feathered, as it were, throughout the, uh, throughout the Tanakh are stuck with. So that question of kind of what are, we, what are we looking to do here when we're engaging in these questions is at the root of this. Is it enough to say someone's a monotheist? Or is that just a proxy uh, for trying to kind of legitimate, whitewash, create shared space with someone who might sit uh, across a cultural, religious, moral divide? Now, why does all this matter? Well, on a technical level, it matters because of Hilchot Avodah Zarah. That is to say, the laws of Avodah Zarah, which begin already in the Bible, with the command to wipe out vestiges of it from the land of Israel and to generally avoid worshiping it, but get played out in all sorts of detail in rabbinic sources, mean that there are boundaries, significant and meaningful boundaries set up between Jews and idolaters. And therefore, the question of labeling someone an idolater or not becomes a key question. And the answer becomes a key answer for, let's say, the rabbinic and biblical Jew figuring out how much commerce and relationship can I have with this person? Just to put a very fine point on it, if part of the laws of Avodah Zarah forbid you, as they do, from having commercial relationships with idolaters three days before and three days after their festivals, at least in one formulation, well, it's then quite a big deal uh, on an economic level to figure out who's an idolater or not. Uh, specifically, if Christians are idolaters, and if Sunday is their day, and three days before and three days after are forbidden in commerce, well, you see where that goes. Um, there's an impossibility of actually having any kind of economic interplay. And so from a kind of utilitarian financial interest, there's sometimes real pressure in figuring out, are there ways of you know, thinking creatively about how someone's not an idolater? But on a more substantive level, the laws of idolatry are not just meant to be kind of economic hoops that you do or don't jump through. They're kind of a proxy for who are the people that you look out in the world and either think are your allies or are your enemies right, who are actually dismantling uh, the world that you want to be a part of. You know, it's, it's sad to me that this is an effective way of explaining this now, but the best way to explain and understand this 
is captured pretty well by where a lot of our partisan politics are in America today, uh, where for many people, uh, at least as a default point, being a member of the opposite party is not just, well, someone I have some disagreements with, but someone that's actually trying to dismantle my vision of the republic. Whatever that issue is around abortion rights, about gun uh, laws, about any number of issues, it's not just we disagree. Um, it's you are actively working against my vision of a safe and redemptive society. And it's important to kind of keep that in mind as both the background of the laws of Abu Dazara, really a sense that there was a threat here from idolatry to what we're trying to build, not just on the level of dogma, but on the level of what, what am I standing for and all the morality, again, that sort of flows downstream from certain claims, theological claims. And when you see sources that are working through people's dogmas and whether they're compatible with monotheism, part of what I want to do in this session, aside from uh, exposing to you or for those who have seen some of this, elucidating further some of the material on these questions, is to remember that a lot of times what's driving the desire for a picture to admit someone into my dogmatic or theological fellowship is a presumption that, well, these are decent people and I don't necessarily want to be completely cut off from them, right? A low level piece of that is the economic element of it, but a higher level piece of it is, do I respect their houses of worship as such? Do I see them as fundamental allies uh, in larger causes uh, in the broader world? Okay, so that's a little bit of a lengthy introduction to give some background to what we're going to jump into, which is now really going to proceed through questions around Islam, Christianity, and then one sugya in particular that I want to just get into and understand, uh, which has begun to play a little bit more of a role in people even evaluating, reevaluating uh, religions and religious expressions that seem quite obviously and overtly polytheistic as potentially being monotheistic at their core, and whether in some ways that is the language that can be used to open one up to a greater relationship uh, with folks who seem, uh, at least at first blush, to be dogmatically untouchable. Uh, for those who are interested in more work on that, particularly with uh, Eastern religions, uh, Dr. Alan Brill has been doing a lot of work and writing uh, on this uh, as of late, and you can find his stuff online on his blog and various contexts. So let's begin with a tshuva of the Rambam to Rabovadia Hager. Rabovadia Hager is a fascinating figure who shows up in a number of the Rambam's tshuvot. Uh, you may have encountered him in one of the Rambam's most famous tshuvot about converts, where the Rambam just goes on about how converts are the absolute equal of Jews. There's nothing to talk about here. And that's all actually assuaging uh, the insecurities of his student, uh, Ovadia Hager, who was Abdullah uh, as a Muslim and converted to Judaism. And here's what the Rambam says in this tshuva. You asked about the Muslims, Hayishma'ilim. You said they are not idolaters, meaning on some level, you know, you're, you're reporting from your, your previous life. Like, I was an idolater before we believed in the one God. But your teacher, someone other than the Rambam, said that they are, and that the rocks that they throw at their shrine are for mercury. Okay, now what is this? He's talking here about 
uh, the one of the acts that goes on during the Hajj uh, in Mecca, uh, where there is a kind of a stoning of the of the devil, a stoning of Satan, and this mashlichin uh, lemarkulis is a way of not really claiming that they're throwing them to the god Mercury or Hermes, but that is the language that the Mishnah uses to describe a certain kind of idolatrous practice of throwing rocks uh, at what we would think of today as cairns, trail markers, but which were then a way cairns seem to actually have their origin in the notion that travelers throw rocks at uh, various key places along the journey, asking the god Hermes for assistance. But this is a way of saying this act of rock throwing as part of the Hajj is an act of idolatry. That's what his teacher wants to say to Okay. And right here, I want you just to feel in the question. I'm not going to do this every time, but just to feel. Ovadia is really making a theological dogmatic claim. He's like, no, no, no. I know Muslims believe in one God. I think the anonymous invisible teacher here, who Rambam's going to smack down in a minute, is actually making a claim with theistic theological rhetoric that is much more about the practice and saying, but look at this, these people are throwing rocks. Like this is not, this cannot be like a subset of our religion. This isn't like Judaism minus Shabbat and Kashrut, just a pure belief in our God, but I don't do these other rituals. There's some whole other thing going on there. And I don't care what story they're telling about it. This is off, right? That, that's the tension, right? Which of those should dominate? Okay, he answered you improperly until you were very upset and embarrassed. In speaking to you, he referred to the verse, answer a fool according to his folly. This becomes very heated, a very painful exchange. You can see Ovadia is getting embarrassed because basically he doesn't feel comfortable completely maligning his Muslim past, even though he's become a Jew. But he doesn't want it to be a complete delegitimation of where he came from and particularly thinks it wasn't illegitimate in the first place for him as a Gentile. Okay, so the Rambam says the following. Muslims are not idolaters at all. And idolatry has been totally cut off from their hearts and mouths. They unify God's name properly with a monotheism without taint. Just because they lie about us and falsely say that we think that God has a son, Ezra, we should falsely say about them that they are idolaters. Okay, so we're not going to get into the internal Muslim-Jewish polemics here. But the Ramam is aware that there are things that the Muslims say about the Jews that are wrong and distorting and claims that the Torah has been distorted and that we are actually less pure monotheists than them. Uh, and that Ezra has, you know, played this role of bringing the Torah back and he claimed to be like a Jesus type figure, all kinds of things that are going on in the background here. Um, but the Ramam says, that, of course, that's all wrong and that's all a lie. But you're going to then lie about them and say that they are idolaters? They're not. And if someone claims that the house that they revere, not reverse, <laughs> is a house of idolatry and an image and an idol is hidden in it that their ancestors worshipped, who cares? Those who bow to it today are focused only on heaven. So the claim that the main shrine in Mecca, 
which is true, was once an idolatrous shrine and was sort of re-consecrated by Muhammad to be a shrine to God, to Allah, to the single God, creator of the world. The Ramam says, right, who cares that there were some ancestors on the Arabian Peninsula who once had a different uh, relationship to that building? At the end of the day, today, um, it is a pure monotheistic site. Okay, so the Rambam, you see, is an example of breaking hard in the direction, basically, of dogma, belief, theology. He says, I look at Islam as a belief system. It's 100% clear that it is monotheistic. Uh, and therefore, you have no basis for saying that Muslims are idolaters. Okay, very kind of simple claim. That, and I will say this, for the most part, that has been the dominant approach of the discourse of halakha around Islam since the time of the rabbah. That is to say, people who will not enter into churches, for a reason we'll get to in a little bit, will enter into mosques. The notion that I can, you know, sort of share, I could be in a joint forum with a Muslim and we could both praise God together whereas I might be skittish about doing with that with someone where I'm not sure exactly where the theistic language is directed, that following the Rambam is the dominant position. There is, however, this line in the Gemara, which is going to get taken up by the Ran, a later medieval authority. It says as following. Now, we're not talking about Islam. We're just talking about good old-fashioned good old fashioned idolatry back in the Talmud. So it's a capital offense to worship idols. Question is, what counts as worshiping an idol? What if in particular you worship an idol or you right, engage in idolatry out of love or out of fear? What's out of love? Out of love in the sense of you're trying to curry favor with a government official. And in order to build up that relationship, you say, yeah, okay, I'll go, I'll go to that person's temple and I don't really think it matters. I don't really care about it, uh, but I'll do it. Or mira, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. So I do it. Uh, or I'm afraid that I'm going to be killed. And even though I'm supposed to give up my life rather than worship idols, the question is, yeah, but if I don't do that, right, have I actually violated the penalty on idolatry? So Abaye says, yes, that's no different than any case of willingly do it. The ban on worshiping idols includes these contexts where there's some kind of pressure, positive or negative. Rava, by contest, uh, contrast, says, you are patur. Like, you shouldn't have done that, but... That's not really an act of idolatry. An act of idolatry has to be one pursued with devotion, not under some kind of pressure, again, positive or negative. Okay, the Ran jumps onto this and says the following. Even though we hold like Rava, that one is exempt, that if you worship God, if you worship an idol in this way, you haven't really, you have not really, violated the core prohibition. You can't be punished. It's not a capital crime, right? Such that one is not subject to the death penalty, nor required to bring a sacrifice if you did it, you know, sort of almost unwittingly. Nonetheless, it is a matter of idolatry. And even though one is exempt, one is forbidden from doing so, for we hold that idolatry and all of its accessory actions are forbidden on pain of death. So sure, if you go ahead and worship idols, me'ava umiyira, 
we follow Rava, we're not going to prosecute you. Even in a time where there's a rabbinic court that's administering the death penalty, you will be exempt. But you're not allowed to do that. We learn from here that the saints of the Christians and Muhammad, and here you have an incendiary term that he uses, literally the madman of the Arabs or the Muslims, so you can sort of see where this is going, even though they do not mistake them for gods, since they bow to them with prostration, such as that reserved for the divine, their actions have the status of idolatry for all purposes. For they do not merely bow down for purposes of glorification, since there is no glory for the dead. Rather, these acts of worship are like acts of worshiping a god. Okay, so with Christians and saints and statues, we can, uh, I think, understand that and know what that picture looks like. Question here, whether the Ran is accurately describing anything that would actually be going on in Islam is a serious question. And the Ran is living in Christian Spain, uh, such that he's not really living next door to a lot of active mosques, uh, you know, and sort of knowing what's happening there. But he has a picture here of... Uh, there being a reverence of a human figure, basically, that is beyond what would be appropriate. And I think here, again, part of what he is reacting to and leads the Ran to really be the only medieval authority that declares Islam to be a form of idolatry is, I think, leaving the dogma behind for a moment, uh, at least on the level of do I believe in one God, he kind of looks at the picture of what's going on here on the ritual level and basically says, Jews don't do anything like that with Moshe or with anyone else. This is sort of out of the range of the way in which we worship. And again, whether or not it's an accurate picture of what's going on in Islam, the idea here is that the Ran looks at any system that really has a kind of different approach to ritual worship and all of these things and says, how can that be the same? Um, obviously, it's not the same. No one's claiming these are Judaism. How can that just be the same one God, right? And even though, as he says, they don't mistake them for gods, nonetheless, there's actions that are avodazarai. Okay, so that's the first piece that we see here on kind of Islam. And you will see this in the Tzitz Eliezer, uh, kind of played out in uh, a final contemporary thing. And then I'll, and we'll just look quickly at the Tzitz Eliezer and Revovad Yosef for two contemporary takes on this that I think then start to show you how, again, the question of what's lurking in the background here, I think, is what are the assumed desire or reality for kind of relationship and intersection? The Tzitz Eliezer, an Ashkenazi posek, someone whose entire, though he lives in Israel, whose entire background is from Christian countries, writes the following. Your honor wrote that Rav Shlomo Zalman Minahar said in my name that any house of worship of another religion has the status of a house of idolatry, even a mosque. And you want to know if this is true and what the source is for this. Tzitz Eliezer is quoted as having a position that there is no such thing as another religion that is basically the same as Judaism on the level of the worship of God, just that there are different rituals. If it is another religion, it is a form of Avodah Zarah. It is far. 
Is that true, says the questioner, that you hold that? Indeed, it is true. And my support comes from the Ram. We see there explicitly that even Muslim worship and their prostrations, their false prophet, and all their sacred acts have the status of idolatry. If so, it is clear that the mosque where they carry out these asks, all acts also has the status of a house of idolatry for all purposes, and it is forbidden to enter there. And then, Baruch Adokeinu she'evdilanu minatoim v'natan lanu Torah temet. Blessed is God who has separated us from those who err and has granted us a Torah of truth. Okay, so you see here, and we can speculate, not going to get into it here, and I'm not sure I have the even the full picture to give you how much the, the background, the background in Christian, you know, European Christianity and all of that contributes to this, the background of going through uh, more directly uh, the Shoah and its aftermath contributes to this. But the Tzitz Eliezer basically says, no, monotheists don't all believe in the same God. Meaning, I'm paraphrasing him, but he's essentially saying, if it's a different religion, it's off limits to you. It might be a separate question of whether I have to think those people are awful, evil people. But there is not a place for some kind of overlapping dialogue. We believe in the same thing. We just have different rituals. If it's a different religion, its house is the same as a house of idolatry. Essentially, the key is that it is not Judaism and anchored in Torah. A kind of rejection of the notion of, is Judaism like monotheism plus a whole bunch of other things? And if I find someone else who's a monotheist plus or minus a whole bunch of other things, we have that in common. And essentially the Tzitz says, no, if you don't have the Torah in common, you are not actually going to have God in common, no matter what the language is. Rabovadi Yosef, polar opposite. It seems that the mosques of the Arabs do not have the status of houses of idolatry, and it's permitted to enter them. With regard to the Ran, who said that since they prostrate there in the manner one bows before a god, they have the status of idolatry, we can say that had he been aware of everything the Rambam wrote in his responsum, he would not have said what he said. The idea, which is historically correct, that the Ran did not have access to that first responsum, that first tshuva of the Rambam that we read. Clearly, here's the claim, the historical claim, the Rambam was more familiar with Muslims than was the Ran. The Ran is sitting in Christian Spain, really doesn't know anything firsthand about Muslims. The Rambam does. Nonetheless, Tzitz Eliezer wrote to equate the Mosque of the Arabs with the Church of the Christians based on the Ran. With all due respect and apologies to him, we hold the words of Rambam to be primary. Muslims are not idolaters and therefore their mosques do not have the status of houses of idolatry. Now here too, I don't want to overread everything is determined by history and context, but Rabovadia obviously comes from uh, a Jewish community from hailing from Muslim lands with a long, centuries-long tradition of all kinds of overlap and Muslims, you know, coming over for the Memuna at the end of Pesach and having all kinds of other uh, interactions with, which I would say can be described as when the Muslims weren't persecuting the Jews were pretty good, <laughs> right? In other words, there's, there's flare-ups here and there, but overall, there was actually quite a lot of overlap. And it was based in, on some level on a sense of some sense of comp- compatibility, uh, between the religions. Again, that wax, that waned. Uh, you see even the Ramam himself talking about slurs and insults that are being hurled by Muslims at Jews. 
by two very different pictures. Okay, so and what I'm suggesting to you is, I don't think the debate between the Tzitzeliezer and Rabovadia can just be summed up as like, you know, a theological debate of what's the best way to read the Quran. Uh, I think what you have here instead is the use of theological language to actually sort out how much separation are we looking to have? How much separation do we or don't we have? And the theological language, I think, is often best understood as the lagging indicator of something much more fundamental of, are these societies integrating in one way or another? So that's what we have to say on Islam in the first context here. So let's move on now to Christianity. And we've got some good, a couple of comments here that are important to remember, which is when we talk about like Islam, right? There may be internal debates, right? The same way you see someone talking about Judaism, you're like, well, which kind and this movement and this interpretation and this posaic. So we're always flattening on some level when we have more distance and when we're making broader claims. Okay. So the same Rambam who says, I don't know what you're talking about uh, to potentially suggest that Muslims are idolaters, they are 100% monotheists. Uh, and in another place, he even says they're more monotheistic than us. They're, they're more careful about it than we are. Here's what the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah says about Christians. Know that the Christian nation that maintains their messianic claim across all of its sects, they are all idol worshipers, and their holidays are all forbidden. And we deal with them in all matters of the Torah as we deal with idolaters. Therefore, one should know that any city in Christendom where they have an altar, meaning a house of worship, that is a house of idolatry without any doubt. And it is forbidden to pass through such a city, there goes your European vacation, and certainly to live in it. But God has submitted us to their power, such that we have no choice but to live in their cities, to fulfill the evil prophecy, and you shall worship their gods made by human beings of wood and stone. And if this is the status of the city, all the more so the house of idolatry itself. It is practically forbidden to look at it and certainly to come near it and obviously to enter it. So the Rambam there very clearly says, well, what's the problem? There's a belief in an incarnated version of God as Messiah that is a black on white act of idolatry that is worshiping something other than God. That is a tenet of all Christianity. So you can't get into there's this community or that community. Obviously, Rambam is before the Protestant Reformation. So everyone's in theory, either Catholic, he's after the schism of the, uh, you know, there's, there's Eastern and Western churches at that point. But there's still there's some notion, you may find some variation uh, in dogma, but they're not going to differ on the question of Christ. And that is the fundamental problem. And therefore, you see here what it is to take the laws of idolatry at full depth. Right, which is basically, this is a corrupting force on earth. Uh, I, I, I joked about it. It's not really a joke. Like you certainly don't go on vacation there. You don't choose to make a life there. You stay away from it. Okay. The only thing the Rambam will concede is, well, what are you going to do? You know, the Christians come in, they take over places where people live. It's not as if he expects all the Jews of France. Uh, Rabbeinu Tam to evacuate and abandon their livelihood and this and that, but they're living in a tragic situation that if they're able to, you know, extricate themselves from that, they should. That's pretty clear on that side. 
I'm not going to get into the long passage here of the Rambam in Hilchot Mamrim, but that passage has a little bit of a softening. Uh, it's a passage that was censored out in many versions of the Mishnah Torah. I encourage you to look at it if you've never seen it, where the Rambam, even though he essentially maintains the notion that Christianity is idolatry, nonetheless, uh, sort of answering the question of, so why did God allow this to happen, right? Sort of like, how, how could Christianity possibly have been allowed by God to be so successful, uh, if it is, um, and it's still, right, the world's largest religion by followers. Uh, how could that have been allowed? And the Rambam has this fascinating answer, uh, which is kind of poignant, actually, if you live in, uh, I, I find if you live in America in particular, he basically says, right, you can go anywhere to the farthest places. They know who Moshe is. They quote from the book of Psalms. They know the Bible. Like there's been this sort of unbelievable spreading of the Bible to all corners of the world. And the Ramam's take is that ultimately is going to make the true coming of the Messiah that much easier because you won't need to show up and say, hey, well, there's this truth that, you know, we need to let you into. It's essentially, uh, right, it's almost the version of that joke. Like when the Messiah comes, we'll ask him, have you been here before, right? And the answer will be no. And, oh, okay, fine. But now I know what I'm supposed to do. So the Ramam has a fascinating way of grappling with that. But other than that slight toning down of there may be a purpose to it, right? At the end of the day, uh, there is still uh, fundamentally a... Um, uh, a block between what Judaism is and the idolatry of Christianity. So the first person to try to open this up to really kind of uh, at least explore language whereby Christianity perhaps is not obviously a form of idolatry that requires this kind of cutting off uh, in the way that Rambam describes is Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam in the Tosafot in Northern Europe, again, not surprising. It, it, it's very tempting to reduce everyone here to sort of their local geographic interests. I don't think that's the only thing going on, but, you know, it's noteworthy, right? Rambam, who lives among Muslims, is like, you know, absolutely not. The Muslims are fine. Doesn't live among Christians. They're 100% idolaters. Uh, the Ran is able to tar Muslims, you know, from afar. And Rabbeinu Tam, who is deeply embedded in a Northern European Christian culture, you can imagine ways in which he has an interest, if only for economic purposes, to downgrade some of the differences. But let's see the Talmudic passages from that are the origin of some of this. Okay. So this is the Talmud Bavli in Sanhedrin. Acherim omrim, vav elucha, were it not for the Vav, which brought you up, He'elucha, the haters of the Jewish people would have been centered, sentenced to destruction. Now, the haters of the Jewish people here is a euphemism for the Jewish people. Okay, uh, So the statement here is, the Jewish people would have been completely wiped out had they not said, He'elucha, in the plural. So what is this from? This is from, In the scene of the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf, when the people get up in front of that object of idolatrous worship and proclaim about it, this is your God, Israel, who took you out 
of Egypt, they actually said, these are your gods, O Israel, who took you out of Egypt. Now, on a plain level, that's just because the word Elohim is a plural form. And certainly in the context of apostasy, idolatry, all of these things, it's plural because it's a kind of polytheistic term. But at the end of the day, it is only one calf that's standing there. And so the use of halucha implies that they're worshiping the calf, but maybe also the true God of Israel at the same time. And had they said, he'elcha, in the singular, who he brought you out of Egypt, they would have been totally wiped out. Why was Israel allowed to survive the mass apostasy of the golden calf? Because they still held on also to some devotion to the true God of Israel. So were it not for that vav, which pluralizes that verb, they would have been wiped out. The person who articulated this view got a pushback from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who said, what do you mean? But if you join something to God, even though you're mentioning God, but you create a kind of pantheon, as it were, in which the God of Israel resides, but along with other things, you're uprooted from the world because it says, right? If you worship anything other than God alone, you're in trouble. So it's right, other than God alone, it's not enough to worship God and something else. So Rabbi Shimon Bayochai rejects this. He's like, that can't be what it is. Helucha must be referring uh, to something else which is basically they desired many gods, uh, but not that you can get them off the hook through this plural vav. Okay. Amar avua de Shmuel, getting practical. Shmuel's father said, you cannot have a joint business partnership with a Gentile. Why? You may get into a situation, as you do when you get into business arrangements with people, you may have to take an oath at some point. And then what will happen? You will swear, and he will swear by his idolatry. And the Torah says, which literally means the name of other gods shall not be heard on your mouth, but is being taken here shall not be heard on your account. In other words, you may be the cause that your Gentile partner is going to take an oath based on their, their God. Okay, so we have two terminologies here. One, the notion of shituf, the notion of joining a foreign entity to the God of Israel in worship. And the conclusion of the Talmudic passage is, you can't do that. <laughs> That's not, you can't exonerate Jews for worshiping idols as long as they also worship God. So you can't do that. And also this notion that you cannot be an accessory to a Gentile taking an oath on their idolatry, and therefore, you cannot have joint businesses with them. Okay, so as I said before, if you have three days before, three days after, uh, and Sunday is the day, you're going to be in big trouble. This is another version of that. If Christianity is idolatry, or more to the point, if someone saying, I swear by Jesus Christ, is an act of idolatry, and you can't be in a business partnership with anyone who might say that, 
That's a lot of lost business opportunity. <laughs> and potentially, in a more negative way, that may be a kind of self-imposed draconian economic sanction on economic life for Jews that may make it impossible. So into that breach steps Rabbeinu Tam. And commenting on that point, where it says, It's forbidden for a person to have a partnership. Rabbeinu Tam said that, it is permitted to agree to accept an oath from a Christian nowadays when they all swear by their holy ones and do not consider them to be divine. So here what we see is a practice of swearing by saints. Christians are swearing by saints. You know they're going to swear by a saint. And there's times where actually you need them on record that they're going to take an oath to repay you something or to follow through on a business commitment. Rabbeinu Tom says, it's okay. You know they're going to swear by St. Gregory, and it's okay for you to do that. Why? They don't consider them to be divine. Even though they mention them along with the name of heaven, and their intentions are to something else, that is to say an additional holy entity besides God, this is not under the rubric of idolatry. Also, their intention is on the creator. And even though they join together the name of heaven with something else, we have not found that it is forbidden to cause Gentiles to join other entities to the name of heaven. There's no prohibition on leading Gentiles astray in this manner because they have not been prohibited from doing this. What's the radical read here? The radical read of the Gemara and Sanhedrin is, that statement of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that said, you can't exonerate the people worshiping the golden calf by saying they were also worshiping God, because it's shituf. It's a forbidden act of idolatry, not only to worship a foreign thing on its own, but to worship a foreign thing even if conjoined with God. Says Rabbeinu Tam, that's only about Jews. Gentiles are allowed to mix other things in to the Godhead. Benutami, on some level, seems to be playing out the notion that maybe the Trinity is an act of idolatry for Jews, but not for Gentiles. As long as they believe, as it were, in the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost may be incidental. Okay, now he's mainly focused more on saints here, but the principle seems to include when he says davar acher, that seems to be right. Kavanatam le davar acher seems also to be uh, a kind of oblique reference to Jesus and to other entities that are mixed in with the Godhead. What's fascinating about what Rabbeinu Tamir is doing, which I I would say to you, when viewed through a theological lens, seems somewhere on the spectrum between crafty to incoherent, which is to say, this something like the Trinity is idolatry for Jews, but not for Gentiles, right? Like, it's monotheism for Gentiles, but it's not monotheism for Jews. As a matter of dogma and theology, that feels very strange. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that feels strange. But when viewed from the alternative lens, I keep pushing a sort of keeping an eye out for in these sources, which is, well, maybe I'm trying to find some language for how we're going to live together. 
because Rabbeinu Tam, I don't think here is enamored of Christians in the way someone like the Meiri later on is in Provence, but minimally or on the socioeconomic level, wants to be able to have integration and doesn't feel that his integration with these people is leading to the downfall of the world, at least on the economic plane. You play with the theological language that potentially enables you to get there, but it feels like what's driving Rabbeinu Tam is not a question of pure dogma, but a question instead of, is there a way for me to talk about this relationship that doesn't make it sound like I'm violating my core principles? Indeed, if you look at the Ramah on the Shulchan Aruch, he quotes this position of Rabbeinu Tam, and then you have a fascinating picture in Source 11, where you really see how this stuff starts to become extremely, extremely practical. So the Shulchan Aruch quotes a rule, the background of which we're not getting into, that says, one may not sell Gentiles objects that are specifically used for idol worship in that place. Okay, so if you know, if there's a, you know, there's a, there's a temple to, to a certain God in a place, and you know they offer incense to that God, you can't be in the incense market in that town. People are buying that. You know what they're buying it for. You're an accessory to that. You can't go into that line of business, okay? If you will, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, not being an arms dealer in a context where you know or feel, and then we can all have our definitions of what counts as this, but where those arms are simply going to, you know, completely indefensible purposes, all right? So you can't do that. That's the rule in the Shulchan Aruch. Note, this is the Ramah of Moshe Israelis, 16th century Poland in Christian Europe. Note, the Shulchan Aruch does not live around people who he considers idolaters, because the Shulchan Aruch is downstream of the Rambam, lives among Muslims, and therefore, when he rattles off a rule about idolaters, it doesn't affect him in any way. The Ramah lives in a context of Christians where as you see, Rabbeinu Tam is sort of trying to split the difference. Well, they're not really idolaters, not for them. Maybe their religion would be idolatry if I did it. Ramah still has to deal with this problem. Here's what he says. This is only in the case of a priest, meaning a non-Jewish priest, or an idolater, who can be presumed to offer frankincense to an idol. Livona, they're talking about some, you know, one of the things you might have sold. But in the case of an ordinary Gentile, this is permitted. You don't have to assume that the average person who's buying this is going to use it for idolatrous person purposes. Only someone who's basically a member of a church or someone who, I haven't really gotten to the church yet, but someone who you know is going to do that act themselves. Some say that it's only forbidden to sell them objects that they will use in worship when they have no others like it or when they cannot buy these objects elsewhere. But if they can buy such objects elsewhere, then it's permitted to sell them everything. And some are strict. But the practice is to be lenient like the first view, even though the pious will be stringent for themselves. So what's happening here? Here we have a real sense of the that when he says the practice is to be lenient like the first view. So again, the first view here is saying, you're not allowed to create the market for idolatrous objects. But once there is a market, and the only person that's being hurt by you staying out of the market 
is you and your profit margin, but you're not actually going to affect the access of the Gentile or the idolater to these goods. Why should you have to suffer if there's a market on which you can make money, as opposed to the second view that says you can never be the agent of that transfer? When the Ramah says the practice is to be lenient like the first view, what you get a picture of here, which we know from other sources, is that Jews were in the crucifix selling business. That was one of the things that they did. You could buy those in any number of places. There was a market for it. In addition to whatever other tchotchkes they sold, they sold people crucifixes. And when Ramah says the practice is to be lenient, he's saying that's the reality. The reality in the Jewish community is that they are selling these objects. Now, this gives you the sort of broader picture here, I think, of the reality of what's happening where the economic intertwining, the necessity, the desire to capitalize on that market, all the different ways we can characterize that is a, re- is a reality, right, in this world, such that I think you cannot ignore that reality as being part of what drives and shapes some of the discussion that seems like it otherwise might be about, uh, might be about theology. Uh, in the interest of time here, we're going to skip over some of these last bits here, but the pieces of the Shach and the Nodabi Yehuda kind of fill out that picture. I want to get to the last segment here and some of the uh, kind of more uh, broader principle pieces and then see, right, if I'm right, <laughs> if I'm right that uh, sometimes discussions that seem like they're about dogma are actually about figuring out um, how might I integrate with different religious cultures, communities, institutions that I don't perceive to be a threat? And how do I find the language for talking about how their commitments don't contradict my monotheism and my universal commitment to monotheism? We would expect to see that bleed over even into discussions of more out-and-out polytheism. Uh, but just taking a moment here to look at some of the other comments here uh, that came up. Are we forced to live there only in order to fulfill the prophecy? Okay, that's a comment from earlier on. Yeah, I think that question, Sally, that you raised there is very much. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a deep, a deep answer other than recognizing kind of the tragedy of it of it happening. But for the Rambam, it seems like the only reason Jews are really living uh, in places like that is to fulfill that prophecy, um, and that there's something tragic about it. And implied, I think one should end it if one can. One can. Uh, great Shulchan Aruch HaRav, already living after the Reformation, not all Christian sects are idolaters. One of the things you get, certainly by the time you get to early modernity and beyond, is attempts to divide between different kinds of Christianity. Is it maybe only Catholicism, maybe only an iconographically heavy Christianity, any number of other things? These two will be uh, pulled out. Again, I think Sometimes those are really born of real theological concerns. Sometimes they are local ways of figuring out how to build bridges and remove boundaries, again, at least on the commercial front, uh, but sometimes for something. So I mentioned earlier in passing the Meiri uh, in Provence. The Meiri is the most dramatic kind of rethinker of all of this. Someone who comes along and basically says, uh, I can have uh, full respect. <laughs> basically for the other monotheistic religions that I am exposed to. The Miri is not really exposed to anything we would recognize as 
polytheism. Um, and so therefore, what's really at stake for him is Provencal Christianity. And he's commenting on passages in the Talmud that, of course, are dealing with things like the worship of Hermes or Mercury that I mentioned earlier, uh, or bowls that have dragons and the sun and the moon and other images on them that seem to be part of a much more robust uh, pagan culture. And he says the following, many commentators agree that one should be strict and say that the Mishnah's limited prohibitions on bowls featuring suns, moons, and dragons is only in places where we don't know what they worship. But if we know that they worship another form, we forbid objects with that form as well. Similarly, one would be lenient in a place where it is known that they do not worship animals, images or pe of people or dragons for their appearance is only for decoration. So again, the background here is you can hear is the Mishnah has some very specific cases that come out of its milieu. And some of the interpretive debates are, well, how, you know, is it specifically about a dragon? Is it about the sun? Is it about the moon? Or are those examples of just, you know, stuff you see in your environment? that idolaters, you know, stamp on various objects, then you're not allowed to use those objects. Um, and maybe it's broad. And similarly, to the extent you know that something has become totally decorative, you don't have to worry about that and attempt to sort of go to the substance of it. And Meiri says, this line of interpretation, which says, sun, moons, and dragons are neither limited to suns, moons, and dragons, nor fetishizing those images. They're a conventional way of describing things that are worship, that then get stamped on things, you should avoid. He says, this is my basis for being lenient in these matters today. For idolatry has passed away and the religions have changed. And this is true even with an object of ostensible idolatry itself. No one casts any doubt on the permissibility of stones, even if they have been found in the shape of a marculis, a cairn or pile of stones, in these times and in these lands. It's kind of amazing to see it in a medieval formulation. This is what many people would say, certainly in America today. You would say, you walk down West End Avenue and you see an image of a Medusa on an apartment building. Oh, that's decoration. That's neoclassical, you know, touches on a building to make it look authentic. No one's worshiping that. You see a cairn on a trail in the Southwest. No one's worshiping Mercury. These are things that you can trace back, having some earlier incarnation, as it were, no pun intended, but you can uh, understand very clearly what their function is and is not today. The Meiri brings that lens, okay, essentially broadly to, I don't care what's happening in terms of the iconography, any number of things. If I know, if I can tell that people are not idolaters, then basically I don't treat them as idolaters. And here is what the Meiri says more broadly on this. Nonetheless, anywhere it is known for certain that they do not behave in the way that Mishnah assumes Gentiles do, even if they are idolaters, it is permitted to do all the things that the Mishnah forbids. One of the examples is, for instance, the Mishnah says, you can't get a haircut from a Gentile in private. You can't go into a, a room with a closed door and get a haircut from a Gentile. Why? The fear is the Gentile will kill you, and you're putting yourself at risk. Says the Meiri, I can't speak to what the reality was then. All I can do on some level is rely on rabbinic sources as reporting something to me, but I know that's not the reality in the world I live in, and therefore, none of those laws apply. 
We've already clarified that these things were said about earlier times when those nations were idolatrous and their practices were disgusting and their character was reprehensible. But other nations that are bound by the ways of religion, who are free from any defect in these areas of behavior, in fact, they punish those who violate these sorts of norms. There is no doubt that none of these laws apply to them, as we have explained. And that's the Me'iri there and in other places, essentially telling you contemporary Christianity is not idolatry. But fascinatingly, on some level, the reason he's telling you it's not is you see how the people behave decently, and you see that these are people you would want to live around. And the Me'iri, in some ways, is giving you the mirror image of what I said you find in the Tanakh. In the Tanakh, the condemnation of idolatry is always bound up with a kind of moral condemnation. The Me'iri almost says, if you see people who are completely decent, whatever the external form of their religion is, can't really be actually something that's in contradiction with idolatry. Um, and all the religions have changed over. They could have the same form. They have a different meaning. Right? That's a kind of totally opposite way of assessing things. And what that then raises, as I said, um, is the possibility of someone who's going to think like the Me'iri or an heir of the Me'iri in the contemporary world is going to very quickly try to find a way to say, well, wait a minute. I understand that conventionally Hinduism and other Eastern religions seem like they're totally polytheistic compared to Islam or Christianity, but isn't there a way... <laughs> to basically say that like that's not idolatry for the purposes of rabbinic law and all of the details of restrictions. And that's a kind of thinking that I would say is sort of in its infancy, actually halachic infancy right now, but maybe it's already in its adolescence. More and more voices, I mentioned Alan Brill, uh, Professor Daniel Sperber, uh, among others, have started to kind of explore the notion, what would the language look like to think of various religions that we think of as conventionally polytheistic as actually being monotheistic. Now, I think there is a way of uh, engaging with that question that's genuinely, genuinely interested in the dogma, genuinely interested in the theology, but I suspect there is also a heavy hand on the rudder there, as we've seen with the earlier cases, of a desire to codify, reify in theological language what feels already intuitive, which is, are these people potentially our allies, our fellow travelers on any number of other values, morals, et cetera, et cetera. I'll just leave you so you understand where it even comes from, how you can even get that off the ground. There's one amazing passage in the Gemara, Navodazara, which is wondering about an idol that breaks by itself, like it falls off the table and shatters into two. The general principle is that an idol is forbidden to a Jew unless the Gentile takes an action and shows, right, smashes it and says, I don't believe in this anymore. And then you could benefit from the shards. You know, you could melt them down. You could use them for something else. Uh, but what if it just breaks on its own, right? Is that enough uh, to have it decommissioned, as it were? Rabbi Yochanan says that's not enough. Reish Lakish says it is enough. And along the way, Rabbi Yochanan tries to prove to Reish Lakish, it's not enough if it breaks on its own, from a passage in the book of Shmuel, where the Ark of the Covenant has been taken captive by the Plishtim, by the Philistines. 
And there is a scene there where it talks about the statue of Dagon, the Philistine god, having fallen over onto the threshold and had its hands cut off. And it says that because that statue fell down and broke, the priests of Dagon from that point forward would never step on that point of the threshold where the idol had fell. And Rabbi Yochanan wants to say, well, that proves that even after the thing fell and broke, they still considered it to be sacred, right? Because they had this sort of act that they took in response, right? The avoidance of that threshold suggests they still consider it to be sacred. Reish Lakish says to Rabbi Yochanan, Misham Raya, you're going to bring proof from there? No, 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 no. In that case, they indeed abandoned the statue of Dagon and ended up worshiping the threshold. For they said, the spirit or power has left Dagon and now dwells on the threshold. For Reish Lakish's local point, what's his argument? Reish Lakish's local point is, no, the statue was decommissioned. The only reason they were careful not to step on the threshold is they felt the threshold was now sacred because on some level, it's like the spirit went out of this broken idol and went into this new object for the Harry Potter fans, the Horcrux detached and attached to the closest thing in the room, okay? But if you pay attention actually to what Rabbi Rish Lakish is potentially opening up here for theorizing is the notion that idolaters don't really worship the statues that they bow down to. They worship a spirit that they think of as maybe inhabiting that statue, but which they worship independent of being in that statue. And once you open up that way of thinking, you start being in a place where you say, no, 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 you think it's many gods. It's actually just a manifestation of a unified force in multiple forms. And here too, I would say to you, from a theological level, I'm not a theologian and I'm not holding enough to tell you, would someone in the native culture that this kind of move was describing recognize this as authentic or not? Would there be debate over that? Would it be coherent? That I can't tell you. But it does seem to me this would be in the tradition of how do Jews talk about other people and their belief systems, often driven by a desire to have some kind of compatibility, some kind of ability to, again, have commerce with, whether economically or socially, uh, in a way that does not totally cut off. And in that sense, you know, do we really believe monotheists uh, all serve the same God? The answer I might say to you is, well, it depends maybe on how badly you want that to be the case, (laughs) which is to say, Not, I don't mean that in a cynical way, but I mean that the question of the theology here, uh, you've seen can go in quite different directions, right? The Rambam and the Ran can look at the same mosque and reach two very different conclusions. And that doesn't mean that the theological discussion, the Gufo Shalinyan is is completely uh, moot, but it does mean, I think, that it's not the only thing on the table. Um, and I think part of what I find fascinating about that last sugya is the thing that seems like it's the most untouchable or unrevisitable question in the context of like, you know, the god of the Philistines, Dagon, you suddenly realize Reish Lakish himself was kind of open to thinking about what was going on there in some very different ways. And as people 
visit and revisit that question, as I'm saying, in the contemporary world, uh, I think you can expect to see some of that discourse coming in. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Jeremy Tabak, and Susan Pilevsky. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chavinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. <laughs>